Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast for the relentlessly curious. This season, our host and Applied Curiosity Lab's chief curiosity seeker, Becky Saltzman, will be sharing the studio with ACL's chief experience producer and favorite sister, Jennifer Felberg. The lens is, and always will be, curiosity. Each week, fun informal conversations center around one delectable curiosity bite, designed to give your brain the time and ideas to think about thinking, to flex your curiosity muscle, and maybe even revolutionize the way you think. I was driving a bunch of people in my car the other day, and we got behind a Subaru with all those bumper stickers, equality, and a lot of progressive liberal bumper stickers. And one of them was wage peace. Have you seen that one? Of course. Of course. Or what is it? Imagine world peace. Yeah. <laughs> but this one, was world, this one was wage peace. And so I asked everyone in the car, what would it look like to wage peace? And everyone to a person laughed and dismissed it as one of those rhetorical conversations. But as we like to do, when you take it and put it out there as a curiosity bite, you have to use curiosity to really answer the question as to what it would look like. So I thought, well, we'll adopt that curiosity bite for today. Time to delve. Time to delve. What if we really did wage peace? What if we really did wage peace? It's an open-ended question. Right. So how would it look? If we waged peace, we would have to see how to go about it. Right. And what would it look like if we achieved it? Right. What is waging peace? Well, you know, waging war, we understand. People give up a lot. They sacrifice and they toil and they Put are themselves courageous. in danger. Yes, with purpose and willingness to endure. Mm -hmm. And most peaceniks would probably hold a sign, although there was an example of some people lying down on a train track when oh, the yeah. trains were coming with the nuclear weapons and stuff like that. They tie themselves up to stuff. But but mostly peaceniks' desires are passive. We want to end violence. Uh, we want the violence to end. We want to just get that violence off our screens. But that's just wishful thinking. That's my, That might not be waging. Right, exactly. And why should we expect the cost of peace to be any different than the cost of war, mm -hmm. both personal and financial and everything, sacrifice? sacrificial. Mm -hmm. What would happen if we were to wage peace with the discipline, sacrifice, and willingness to suffer that so many have accepted to wage war? I don't think people are ready to give up what they're comfortable with to have peace be the answer. Because the absence of violence isn't peace. It may be a precondition for peace talks, like you have to stop the violence so you can even talk about peace, yeah. but it's not in and of itself a sufficient outcome. It's just that the end of war is the end of a whole system of social organization because war isn't just fighting. It's not just an activity. It's a system, an economy, politics, an ideology, and a principle that we organize society around. It shapes our choices. It sets our agenda. It imposes a system of values. So it doesn't just reflect a bunch of antagonistic entities it creates the entities. It creates right. the tribe. We are here because of war. We are here. I mean, right. the, the lands and the, I would even wager to say, advancements were based on 
the threat of war or the possibility of war. Oh, totally. Mm -hmm. And I don't think our economic engines could run if we sincerely, with the same effort, with the same fervor, with the same curiosity, waged peace. Now, what would that look like? It could look like we take all of the pharmaceutical companies and we say, listen, the idea of chemical warfare has been abhorrent. Agent Orange, anthrax, any of these things that we have accused Assad of launching chemical warfare. We've done it ourselves. The United States has done it ourselves. But what if that chemical warfare was in the effort to wage peace? In other words, a Prozac bomb. Or Buffalo soldier. A bunch of bombs just blowing ganja. Dreadlock Rasta. Ay, ay, ay. Hey, ay, 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 ay. I think that would be fantastic. I mean, if we started with the four primary chemicals in our brain that affect happiness, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins, yeah, we focused on those and we said, okay. I mean, we have accepted the idea that we can take fleshy bodies and destroy them. It's perfectly acceptable. Right. But not our, we can't change our brains. We can't do something that starts on the inside. Everything that we do has to start on the outside. That's scary. It has to be an ex ex exogenous destruction from the outside, not manipulation of endogenous destruction from the inside. Mm -hmm. So we can't do something that would cause cancer or, I mean, we do, but I mean, yeah. something immediate. But what if, the endogenous destruction was was of the things that made us aggressive and hateful and, and unhappy. Right. I mean, that who would, who would do that? I mean, who would do we put in charge of releasing these things? All right. Well, I do think that we would have to invent a whole new economic system. Not. We have all the economic systems. We just have to choose from among them. We can choose socialism or we can choose communism or we can choose capitalism. But those aren't the only offerings. We just haven't invented another offering. And an offering that optimized for peace would have to be completely rethought out. Well, something like where we don't exchange goods and services anymore? Or? I mean, I think you're starting with something too granular. Oh. You would have to start with the objective is to identify what peace looks like. Okay. And... You know, there's people that tr there are organizations that try to do that, like, well, the Nobel Peace Prize being the oldest. That was from I think, 1890s, like maybe the mid 1890s. Yeah, you remember that, right? <laughs> <laughs> I remember when <laughs> Alfred Nobel put this in his will. He left behind what was then one of the largest private fortunes. Oh, I was going to ask if the Nobel Peace Prize or, or the Nobel Prize winners earn any money. Oh, yeah, they do. Well, he first set out his vast fortune, set it aside. It was 31.5 million Swedish crowns. I think they were called crowns back then. Okay. Now they're called crones. <laughs> no, it's I'm a, a crone! And I have Crohn's disease. <laughs> anyway, he invested in these. The point was to invest these in safe securities and then use the interest to distribute a fund that would be in the and, and this is what his quote was, the interest on which shall be annually distributed in the form of prizes to those who during the preceding year shall have conferred the greatest benefit to mankind. What or, are the different kinds? Oh, the different the different categories? Yeah. He was very specific. Physics, chemistry, medicine, L literature, yeah, literature, and peace. peace. And those were the criteria that the committee would apply to choosing the prize recipients. 
and it was to be awarded to the person who had done the most or the best work for fraternity between the nations and abolition or reduction of standing armies. So reduction mm-hmm. of standing armies and the formation of spreading peace congresses. Peace congresses would be an interesting thing to get behind, but without a real structural change, yeah. you're creating a Nobel Peace Prize. You're creating uh, peace treaties that are these just things that you throw out there? I think you have to start somewhere. Does it just make us feel good that we're doing something, but it's really not? It definitely makes you feel good. If you think about extracting yourself from the Paris Accord for Climate Change and a bunch of people say, oh, that didn't have any teeth anyway. It didn't matter anyway. And other people say, yeah, but it's a start in the right direction. It's probably more of a start in the right direction. But what happens is if people think that that's enough, then it becomes worse than not being there at all. So yeah. A couple of years ago, the World Happiness Report started, and that was a survey of uh, over 150 countries that measured how happy their citizens perceive themselves to be. Hmm. And that made me curious about what it would look like to be happy, but not perceive yourself to be happy. I don't think you can. Being happy and thinking that you're happy the same thing? All right. So this gets to a fundamental (laughs) question about free will. Do you choose to be happy? Or is happiness thrust upon you? By Prozac and Lexapro. (laughs) Thank you, Wellbutrin. (laughs) And you feel happy when you take Wellbutrin, but you also- No, I mean, I don't, but I feel not unhappy. Okay. Well, if it was working really well, you would feel- happy if you took Wellbutrin. Alcohol helps me feel happy. No, alcohol alcohol helps you not feel. That's true. But if Wellbutrin made you happy. Yeah. It just again, it's like not a happiness is not just the cessation of depression. Just, How, yeah. Like peace isn't just a cessation of war. Right. But if if it did make you feel happy, then you would feel that you controlled your happiness by choosing to take it or not. Right. Right. But what if Sonny in the middle of the night, unbeknownst to you, had some cream that he put on on your arm and you woke up feeling happy and you thought, you know what? I'm really glad I got a lot of sleep last night and I exercised and I drank water. But for the fact that Sunny not rubbing out, what is it? What Prozac or what's Albutrin or whatever you take, whatever. (laughs) But for the fact- I take a couple of them, just to be perfectly honest. (laughs) Oh, cocktail of them. If for the fact that Sunny had not rubbed that whatever cocktail on your arm, uh, unbeknownst to you, and you attributed it to- getting a good night's sleep or just having a positive attitude or writing in your grat- gratitude journal oh, yeah. or just making up plans for a vacation, you could think that you controlled your happiness. What harm would there be if you thought you controlled your happiness, you perceived yourself to be happy, but by every neurochemical measure, you weren't? First of all, how do you, in- how do you measure, you were saying like different neurological measures of how you judge happiness. How do you do that? I don't know how you would judge happiness. You would have to have a subjective you have to have a subjective test that goes along with an objective test. So you would measure levels of dopamine or you'd level measure levels of uh, serotonin or cortisol and you'd say okay and then you would report how you feel. And it could be it could get to the point where someone could administer something to manipulate these chemicals in some way. Or do something to your body to elicit the chemicals, whether it's you know managing your your um, microbiome mm-hmm. to el- to optimize or elicit these chemicals, not even optimize to make you like 
happier than you should be. You could be totally satisfied by the fact that you were hungry and you didn't have resources and whatever. As long as you could live, you could be happy by a manipulation of your neurochemistry. I mean, I feel like I always I already do that with by taking the medications that take away my depression. I'm giving up some of my control to pharmaceutical companies to take to change my neurochemistry, right? And we've accepted that insidiously. Yeah. So why What's a step more? If we all agreed that a certain way that we feel was universally optimal and we called it happiness or flourishing or whatever and we all agreed that you know, money can't buy happiness and buying a new sports car and this and that. If you felt depressed at the end of the day and you had all these things and people admired you, does it really matter? Mm -mm. And I was talking to this guy when I was at CES a couple of weeks ago. I was talking to a senior guy at the company that I was working with. They had just been acquired by this company. And he was talking about the fact that the company that I was working with is a actually 352-year-old family-owned company in uh, Europe. And he, his company that he worked with was a U.S. company. So his goal was always the game of profit. Mm -hmm. And this company is really look, taking a long approach. They're looking at how do we stay relevant as a company for our descendants in the next 100 years, not in the next quarter for our shareholders. So he was really having to adjust. And I said, well, don't you start with what makes you happy? And he said, I love the game of business. The game that makes him happy. And measuring profits is how I see whether I'm succeeding in that game or not. And I said, but what if you discovered a better way to be happy. I mean, that's just been a way that you've been sold and you bought it and it works for you, but you're assuming that there's not a better way. You know that there's a worse way. Why do you think that this is the best way? Mm -hmm. And it was kind of confusing. He says, oh, you're asking too many philosophical questions. I said, that's the point. But 2019 was the seventh world happiness report. And they interviewed, you know, interviewed, I guess they measured or surveyed people on things relating to happiness like mental illness and the objective benefits of happiness and guess who the winners were yeah that's what i was going to ask you i'm going to guess because i just know that the northern like sweden switzerland that kind of area they're the ones that are the happy happiest i'm just guessing because it seems like they're the ones that always live longest and all of that kind of stuff you are right but i can't yeah i do okay. it i'm I gonna just give you the, the the order finland has been high on the list it would be cold as the witches yeah see i wouldn't like i would not be happy because i do not like being cold but i can see them being happy because they have those cute little gnomes they have but you know who has cuter gnomes who the number four iceland Oh. They have gnomes. They have a whole fairy culture. And I went to a fairy garden and they are protective. <laughs> I mean, they are there for shizzle. They are there. Are they as cute as the ones with the little pointy hats and stuff? Yeah, they're the same because these are all Viking people. Oh, these yeah. are all So it goes Finland, Denmark, Norway, Iceland. Not surprised. Netherlands, Switzerland, Sweden, okay, so New Zealand. Who, oh, New, New Zealand? <laughs> Wait yeah. a minute. One of these things is not like the other. But they have sheep and they're soft. Well, and they don't have and a lot it was a of people. Penal, it was a penal colony. I thought that was Australia. Oh, I thought that was New Zealand. Oh, I, I can't don't remember. But they don't have that many people. And so it's that easier helps. to be happy when you don't have <laughs> when you have soft animals and not people. Yeah. What was the worst? Can you guess? I'm gonna say I would guess war torn countries. Yeah, South Sudan. People that are suffering from Central African yep. Republic and Afghanistan. Yeah, people that are suffering from environmental 
changes, drought, things like that. Yeah. People who have unfortunately suffered for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. The Although some of these countries are not even 100 years old, like South Sudan is a new country. I always think of South Sudan and Yemen when I think of the question, you know, I'm obsessed with this question of to what do you attribute your success? Luck. Luck or hard work or grit. No, luck. And... and I just think the minute you're not born in South Sudan, the minute you're not born in the Central African Republic, you are the rest of your life. You're just it's just luck. Thanking your lucky stars. Yep. Guess where the U.S. is out of 150, I think, three countries, something like that. Oh, I would guess somewhere in the middle. 19. Oh, that's not as bad as I thought. And I think that most people would think that it's ranked worse because we see what we've we see our, our expectations are higher. We don't appreciate. We don't appreciate what we got. Yeah, my day, we appreciate it. Absolutely. Any waging of peace would have to take into consideration the three-legged stool of motivation. Give it to me. Mastery. We yeah. would have to find a way to have people feel that they are getting better. And the problem with mastery is it's relative. Yeah. Relative, and it would be hard to say relative to what I used to be able to do without a measure of what other people do. And then that becomes not peaceful. Okay. So we need chemicals to make us feel that we are, are mastering things. Okay. Then the next is autonomy. <laughs> now, I think that we could wage peace with the data and AI revolution. Quantum computing could provide the kind of robustness that we need to have some system that is programmed to optimize peace on earth. However, what that could do would be determined that there are certain people who just can't exist and they are counter to peace. But I mean, what could, would happen to them? We just kill them? That kind of defeats the purpose. Does it? Because if we're waging peace, it's really not in the moment, it's a plan for the future. And that means that some people, I'm just saying potentially, would have to be eliminated from the project. Ooh, Becky, you better watch out. I'm watching out. I think about the paperclip thought experiment. I can't, I'm going to put it in the show notes, but I can't remember who came up with it, but it was essentially- That with AI? Yes, yeah, so yes, yeah. exactly. So it's essentially this AI machine learning entity that was optimized to make paper clips. So okay. when it ran out of metal, it started like tearing humans apart <gasps> to get to their metal hip or their fillings in their teeth or oh, whatever because it was Oh my god. Because when you are optimized to do something, nothing can get in your way. Oh. So if you were to wage peace, it could have consequences that would look a lot like war. But I do think that we would have to have a whole new system of governance a whole yeah i mean I, I just don't think any of the existing systems would work we would need a whole new economic paradigm that's why people are afraid of ai because that kind of thing like that paperclip experiment is exactly what we're afraid of yes if we give all of our control over to data or machine learning or chemicals yeah i'd like to feel better but what happens if it goes awry? If it was optimized to not have us feel that it went awry, oh. then it would the perception of feeling liberty would be the same as the perception of feeling happiness. So we could all be killed. 
but we'd all be happy and we wouldn't know the difference. And so it doesn't matter. We could all be walking around like zombies. But if we felt that we were happy, if we perceived ourselves to have liberty, I mean, I actually think that liberty is is it's a crutch. I don't believe. Well, you know, I don't believe in free will. So I don't believe we have liberty, but I believe that we need to feel like we do. So the just like we don't need to have happiness if we perceive ourselves to be happy. The only thing that matters is what we perceive. And what we perceive, we already know, is a tiny fraction of what's out there. So it's not about actually the existence of happiness, because what is that outside of our perception of it? What is that outside of our conscious you know, awareness of it. It's not actually the liberty. How do you measure liberty? If I perceive myself to be making choices and choices are being made for me, what difference does it make? Yeah. Whereas if for some reason I don't perceive myself to be making choices, but there are choices that I made, I still don't have liberty. It's yeah. all the perception. And if we understood that and we're willing to create a religion and an economic paradigm that allowed us to optimize for peace, that would be the only way to wage peace. Do well, we value peace enough? <sighs> that's the thing. I think that's the question. Do we value it at all? What are we willing to give up if we really do value it? My list is sort of moot now because <laughs> because everything that you just said takes away how to wage war on pe- wage peace. All right, well let's take let's tackle it anyway. It's uh, not moot. We're going to wage peace using your list. Okay. And we'll but te- if we could, and I we'll mean, tear we it be, apart. We could be shooting each other and running around and you know beating each other up as long as we feel good about it. That's why waging peace has to define peace first. It has to define waging first. Right. We have to attack peace with the same curiosity before we decide if that's really what we want. We talk about it like it's something that we want because it's a, sa- a cessation of violence. Right. But the cessation of violence, it doesn't have to be. Right. It really doesn't. It's just how we define it. It We is, have to define it first before we get... That's why I say we have to define peace first. Yeah. And then we have to define what we're willing to do to wage it. Right. Well, so, this list is about what we should do to wage. Okay. Start by stamping out exclusion. Conflict happens when people don't trust other people, like down with the police or governments everywhere need to stop neglecting and stigmatizing their own people. Or when we say fake news, all those things, when it's us against them, we need to stop that. Considering that there is no animal that isn't in some way tribal, us and them, our fixation on being a self, I am a different entity with different purpose and meaning than you. But when you get down to a particle level, there's no difference between you and me. So at what point, if I start with all the particles and I'm looking, we're just a bunch of particles moving and vibrating. Mm -hmm. At what point from the micro, micro quark level am I me? And on what date am I mostly me when I'm eight? And if we could get rid of this sense of self, then we could get rid of this sense of other. But the sense of self is what holds us. So if we could have a wage war on the sense of self, then we wouldn't have a sense of other. All right. right. Okay. What's the next one? We could do that. No problem. (laughs) No problem. Can we do it after lunch? Because I'm starting to get a little hungry. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Bring about true equality between women and men. With the country's large gender gap, the more likely we are to be involved in violent conflict. The gender gap with Economic gender gap? What do you mean gender gap? Yeah, I would say, what is equal? Is it 
within the pay the pay gap, uh, the strength uh, gra- gap. Yeah, the the ability to grow hair on your face gap. Well, we win. We win with that. <laughs> no, we wouldn't win, but we'd be strong contenders. <laughs> Increasingly strong contenders. The more time we spend in our car, the less we would be contenders. Why? For plucking? Yes. Do you pluck in the car? No, I don't. But I know people do. So apparently it's like the best light, but not for me. I have a special mirror for that. You mean they sit in the car with tweezers? <laughs> you know what? That's the next campaign. Don't tweeze and drive. That is the that texting might be dangerous, <laughs> but tweezing tweezing's gonna kill you. you. You'll get to your if you if you do safely get to your appointment, you'll look better. <laughs> I don't think they're doing it while they're driving. Okay, well I don't you even pull know. over and pluck. Pull over and pluck. That's the new campaign. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna put a link to Tweezer Man because I have to tell you those are the best tweezers, and they're not easy to find. And I don't suggest that this is a digression because this is a public service announcement. This is, and that's not. If ACLR is anything, it is a public service announcement. Right. All right. What's the next one? This the, uh, number three is share out wealth fairly. Forty percent of those who join rebel groups do so because of a lack of economic opportunities. I always chuckle at those things because. <laughs> You have eight people that grew up in the same neighborhood with the same economic opportunity or similar economic opportunity, similar resources, and four join a rebel group and four don't. And still we say that that's the cause. That's the corollary. Yep. But there, if we are so lazy that we think that if we just give resources to people, then they will not join these rebel groups, then we're forgetting all kinds of things that affect our neurochemistry. Now, obviously, if people have no resources, they're going to fight for those resources. And that's the third leg of the motivation stool, resources. Oh, we forgot that. But we also know that above a certain quantity of resources, whether it's money, we also know, and there's a lot of research around this, that above that, people like the resources, but it's not motivating. Right. And I think in this country, it was above $75,000. People loved getting more money. That's not the issue. But, but it's it, not a motivator. It, was, it didn't have the power, the powerful motivating force that mastery and autonomy had. I believe it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't think that just giving people the resources, although I think that consideration of the resources when we're creating this new economic paradigm would have to be huge. I mean, it would be a big part of it. Right. People would have to understand that the platitude of money that money doesn't buy happiness means you just don't know where to shop. (laughs) (laughs) People would have to really embrace the kind of resources that are, that correlate with higher levels of happiness and peacefulness and flourishing and those that don't. And they would have to be willing to believe it because sometimes I think a fabulous vacation makes me happier. And I don't know if the measure, it depends on how you measure it. I don't know. Because that's yeah. what I would use my resources for if I had all the money in the world. Yeah, me too. Me too, me and, too. And I'd take you with me. I want to go with you. Let's go. Number four, tackle climate change. Ecological stress from global warming is proven to exacerbate conflicts over resources like land, like water. I mean, we see that happening everywhere. Well, I spent six years, as you know, looking for the perfect charity to which to donate my time and energy. Oh, yeah. And I 
met with people from all over, programs all over the world. And I finally found through my friend Bill Woodard, an organization that I am going to be devoting a significant amount of time in the next decade, and that is Shelterbox. I am so scared and excited for you. Right. Well, at this point, I am just doing ambassador work. I'm not I'm not applying to do the year-long training for the, it's called SRT. I can't remember what it stands for. Like Anyway, but where you go in country and actually do. But the thing I, the, the reason that I support Shelterbox, I mean, they're a very nimble organization. They were nominated for the Nobel Prize last year and the year before, the Nobel <laughs> Peace Prize. The reason I chose Shelterbox is because I conflict disasters no longer have borders. And people say, well, why don't you do something in your own backyard? Why don't you help the homeless in your own neighborhood? And I don't think it's a zero sum because conflict doesn't have borders. And your point is exactly right. When natural disasters become conflict disasters, they come knocking on your door. Absolutely. There is one element that's missing that causes this to happen, and that is hope. Hope is a strong, strong component of a successful wager of peace. That's my contention. Mm. All right. That's kind of touchy-feely for you. I know, but it's true. It is pragmatic, but hope has, just like disgust, it has a neurochemical component. Mm. It has a substrate that supports a feeling that might be seen as touchy-feely. It is hope. Yeah. And without hope, which is potential. Like people will, listen, we will invest in potential much more than we will invest in reality. Yeah. Number five, control all arms sales. Last night I had the strangest dream I ever had before. I dreamt that all the world had signed to put an end to war. Without controlling arms sales, we could not convert the armament to peace missiles. Peace-seeking Prozac missiles and ganja bombs. Yeah. So we would have to control those things and change the narrative because we're not just kumbayaing; we're freaking waging peace, and yeah. that's an active, sacrificial. That is intense. That is determined. That is not just putting our arms together and hope. Hope is not a strategy for waging peace. So we would have to control. The weapon. Control it, but not necessarily do away with. No, you just change what it does. Yeah. Instead of destroying fleshy humans. Actually, you might still be destroying. You might still strategically. Yeah, I was just going to say that because you. sometimes it's necessary. Right. Right. Depends on how you define peace. Number six, display less confidence, hubris. Yes. And make more policy changes. Kind of like what you were saying about. Americans feeling like they have to go around and save everybody. Absolutely. We would have to decide who's going to be in charge. And it would probably be ye who collects the most data, that has the storage, that has the machine learning component, that we plug in all of the definitions of how we define peace and what we want for a flourishing global world and then let them have at it. Because I think we would just get in the way if we meddled. Yeah. Just and then we'd step have to, aside. And then we'd have to suffer the consequences. It may mean that I'm I'm peace out for you to be peace in. Right. All right. It's probably true. Protect political space. I appreciate this. To have a place where there can be open discourse, where you can discuss what, like what you were saying, like what we're doing right now, have a place where we can discuss what does it look like? What does peace look like? What does waging peace mm -hmm. look like? And we need to protect that so that we have this 
space to have those kinds of conversations. I would be willing to protect that by walking around the circle of the meeting, kind of like a like a lodge, like a smoke. What is that called? Like a smoke lodge thing. I was picturing you like skipping to your loo. With a bong in my hand, blowing ganja <laughs> smoke, you know, some kind of strain that mellows everyone out. So all these people that came and said, I don't like their definition of peace. I just go, oh. and they go, yeah, man, <laughs> right Maybe on. it's not so bad after all. <laughs> Exidos, movement of jumpy people. Ay, 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 ay. All right, what's next? Fixing intergenerational relations. Not poo-pooing the younger generations or pitting the older generation against the younger generation or pitting the old white man ruining everything for everybody. I actually have a negative visceral response when someone says, oh, they're just an old white man. And my guess is that it's a real comeuppance for liberal old I mean, old. What does that mean? It's like it's like it's bad to be old. It's bad to be white. That's ageist. That's not true. I mean, it's whatever. Right. Exactly. I think those kinds of narratives are nothing but harmful. It's just going to come back to bite you. Well, and what's the end to identity politics? The end to identity politics is look. if you are looking at intersectionality to the point where you in order to win the oppression Olympics, (laughs) You know, <laughs> then you are going to carve yourself into an individual at what point identity politics ceases to be. It's a very tricky way to think about things. But this intergenerational, the older, you know, on one hand, the old is bad. Well, what about the sage elders and the young just don't get it? What about the wise people who are? It's silly. It it's a silly. waste of time. Blah. Again, it's the number one, pitting one against the other. And we like to do it because we're tribal. Like all animals. Like all animals. Wait, you think? I don't know. I should actually look. I mean, what? from what I understand, not all animals, but it seems like at least mammals. What I, about seahorses? I just don't care. If I could live <laughs> among seahorses, I Curl would- your little tail- Around oh. somebody. And oh. maybe maybe when I got on land, some lizards and I just sat by each other. Yeah. Fought, you fought. can't be on land if you're a seahorse. No, I go from the seahorse, my seahorse habitat to my lizard habitat. Okay. Number nine, build an integrated peace movement. Basically putting peace into everything you do, making it the forefront of any kind of movement that you're standing for. As long as there was an agreement on peace, then it's not waging peace. But I do think if we had that as the, if everything was optimized for peace. It would be waging peace. It would be waging peace. But I think it would look a lot different than what people think. Absolutely. Peace for whom? For how many? For how long? Yep. Last one. This one I know you're going to love. Look within. Peace starts with you. Ordinary citizens can make a difference. When was the last time you said you're sorry? Well, I was going toward the meditation. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know if saying I'm sorry is contributing to peace or potentially not. (laughs) That leads me to the sort of fact. All right, bring it on, sister. It's two levels because what happened was PU came out with a study that found that 87% fewer people will read about successful attempts to wage peace with the same interest as they read about war. 
And after that study came out, the NRA was pissed. So they enlisted the help of TPU. I don't know what the NRA was doing in Turkey and at a university, <laughs> but 93% of NRA members describe being called a peacenik as Dems fighting words. Thanks for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes for every episode of ACLR and links to all resources mentioned at applycuriositylab.com forward slash blog. It's there that we'll wait to read your answers to each week's Curiosity Bite. Two, in order to avoid missing curiosity-bitten conversations, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and all the other spots that podcasts hang out and wait to be discovered. Toss up a review, especially if you have nice things to say. Finally, for all things Applied Curiosity, including information on workshops and your free membership to the Tribe of the Curious, go to ApplyCuriosityLab.com. In the meantime, elevate curiosity.